Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? You can't really hear it here in the rainforest at the foot of a massive Douglas fir nicknamed Grandfather Capilano in North Vancouver. But Grandfather, who's said to be more than 800 years old, and his younger siblings standing nearby have been sucking carbon out of the air for centuries. A lot less now that they're older, but they are the elders, the guardians of an idea that's become popular across political party lines. Plant more trees. The current Liberal government promised last year to plant two billion of them, knowing that in their younger years those trees will pull lots of CO2 out of the air as they stretch toward the sky. The appeal is obvious. Trees are majestic. The plan is simple. Or is it? Today we look at the promise of trees in fighting climate change, from seeds to saplings to young stands to old growth, just like Grandfather Capilano. We have to do everything we can to have immaculate air, immaculate water, and do whatever else we can that's good. You know, we're planting a billion trees, the Billion Tree Project. That, of course, is U.S. President Donald Trump speaking during the first presidential debate a few weeks ago. He followed that up by signing an executive order promising to join the World Economic Forum's One Trillion Trees Initiative. Now, Trump doesn't seem to like acknowledging climate change, but he does seem to like trees. And that illustrates the broad political appeal of growing voter support by growing more trees. So it's time to check the promise against reality. Do trees really make a difference in pulling carbon out of the atmosphere? Sally Aiken is here to explain. She's a professor and associate dean, research and innovation in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at UBC. Hello. Hi, Laura. How effective are trees at sequestering CO2? Well, at this point, trees are the uh, best piece of technology that we have for taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and fixing it in their tissues, in, into wood, etc. cetera. Uh, of course, we have other technical and industrial processes coming along in that area, but, uh, but trees do that quite efficiently. Of course, all plants take up CO2 from the atmosphere and, and use that to grow. It's interesting you use the word technology <laughs> so much. Yeah. We think of it as just nature at work, but, but they are, in fact, so effective that this is actually the time of year when atmospheric carbon is at its lowest. Is that right? Yes, towards the end of the growing season, uh, we can see the effects of plants in the northern hemisphere uh, this time of year because they have drawn down the carbon dioxide levels that will then go up over winter as those plants sit dormant. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I kind of get it. You're saying that as they grow, they're sucking in more carbon. But why is the atmospheric carbon at its lowest right now? Tell me a little about the process. So what trees uh, and other plants do when they're growing and photosynthesizing, the process of photosynthesis involves taking carbon dioxide out of the air, uh, taking water out of the soil, 
and then making the sugars that then become building blocks for other uh, types of molecules that they build leaves and wood and roots uh, out of. Now, when we're in uh, a seasonal climate like we have uh, here in Canada, those plants are photosynthesizing in, in the summer mostly. Of course, this time of year, many trees are losing their leaves, the deciduous species, and they will not be photosynthesizing in winter. Uh, our evergreen trees uh, that keep their leaves, they can continue to photosynthesize when temperatures are warm enough, but not when it's cold. We've talked a bit about the impact of trees on carbon, but I'm wondering if you can sort of switch it up and talk a bit about the impact climate change is having on, on the trees and the forests that you visit, that you know, that you have researched. How have things changed in that time? Yeah, so what we've seen in the last decade in forests in British Columbia and elsewhere in Western North America and some other parts of the world is that we've had some particularly dry years. So that's one effect that climate change has had on forests is when we've had these droughts, a couple of different things happen. That puts a stress on the trees, and that drought stress kills some trees. Um, but also what happens is it weakens the trees against attack by insects and by diseases. And so we've seen, of course, uh, bark beetles, the mountain pine beetle and others have caused a uh, large amounts of tree mortality. And those types of problems do go up when we have dry years. Of course, the other thing that we have in those dry years is we have big forest fire uh, years. And so, for example, uh, in Western Canada, 2017 and 2018 were uh, very dry years. And we ended up with, of course, enormous fires that converted that carbon stored in all those forests to CO2, giving that off to the atmosphere as the trees burned. Given all the impacts that you know and you've seen, how important or valuable is tree planting when it comes to climate change? Well, tree planting is important, but it needs to be planting the right trees in the right place at the right time. And there are some places that we shouldn't be uh, planting more trees. It really depends on the ecosystem that we're in. In the interior of BC, we have some areas that are very appropriate for that kind of practice. As long as we plant trees that are well adapted to the conditions they're going to experience in their lifetime. But there's other areas, for example, in some of these drier forests, planting trees at high density, so high numbers of trees uh, per hectare may increase the forest fire risks. It may be uh, not a, a situation where those trees are going to have good uh, longevity, good survival. So it's obviously much more complex than just planting trees. And yet we've seen all these political parties on all sides make promises to go ahead and do so. Why do you think tree planting seems to have crossed party lines? Well, tree planting is a lot easier than dealing with the real problem. And the real problem is our carbon emissions. And so to reduce carbon emissions, we need to transition off fossil fuels. And that is a much bigger challenge than planting trees. We're very good at planting trees. Uh, in British Columbia, despite the pandemic, I believe 300 million trees were planted in British Columbia alone this year. 
And it's easier than transitioning our infrastructure, transitioning our economy, uh, transitioning our industries to non-fossil fuel-based energy. Now, that's not to say, again, that trees are not a good way to sequester carbon. Just over a year ago, the Liberal Party promised it would plant 2 billion trees if elected. What do you think of that promise? Well, I think it depends, uh, again, what trees are being planted and where are they being planted and what would happen in those ecosystems if they're not planted. So a deforested uh, ecosystem or a burned ecosystem will usually gradually reforest uh, on its own, but with planting, we can accelerate that process. Uh, we can we can speed up the development of the forest uh, to some extent. And we can also plant trees that have a better chance of withstanding uh, warmer, drier conditions. But we certainly do not want to be going into forests that are developing well and disrupt them in some way by planting or set them back. We certainly don't want to be cutting forests for the purpose of replacing the trees that are there for that purpose alone. Finally, I think we need to make sure that we're not planting trees instead of taking action on emissions. And that's so important. And and if we don't take action on emissions, the trees we plant may not have healthy futures and may not be able to play that role of sequestering carbon. And so then we we just uh, will see this problem compound. Sally Aiken, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Laura. Sally Aiken is a professor and associate dean, research and innovation in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at UBC. Well, that is some of how trees work to cut and store carbon. The next step is how to ensure all the planting takes root. Our next guest knows all about this. Carissa Brown is an associate professor of biogeography at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Hello. Hello. Let's start with this two billion trees promise. If Canada was to move ahead and plant those additional trees, how much land would you need in the first place? It would take a good deal of land. And so we would have to be thinking about planting trees in areas that haven't been forested for a long time or haven't been forested for millennia even. Okay, how do you know then where to plant a forest? Are those the only two things? I kind of see three options of where these two billion trees could be planted. And I think all of the options will need to be used to meet that target. So there are lots of areas in Canada where forested areas were cleared for agriculture or for other land use changes and have now been abandoned or aren't being used in the same way that they were when they were first cleared. So one option is to restore these areas that were forested before European settlement. Another option is to look to areas that we expect to become forested as climate continues to change. Let's say at the northern edge of the boreal forest, we are expecting the boreal forest to expand northward into the tundra, The tundra is a very established plant community already. So you can't just throw seed down on the tundra and have trees regenerate. 
Okay. And what about the question of prepared land? You talked about that. But are these lands that were used for agriculture and then you want to revert them? Yeah. So southern and eastern Ontario and southern Quebec are great examples of this. These were broadly forested areas that were cleared for agriculture after European settlement predominantly. And so that those might seem like good spots to try to restore to forest areas that have been abandoned or have kind of regenerated as old fields or other types of vegetation. And if you throw seed down on that or plant a seedling in there, that seed or seedling won't have access to very much light. And all of those other plants that are present are already using a lot of the nutrients in the soil. So it's really competitive environment for a tree to establish in. So among the challenges that, that are faced when you're planting these these things, the, the, you, you've talked about the sugar maple in the past. What is the challenge of the sugar maple? Just to give us an example of what we're looking at. Sure. So one of sugar maple is one of the species that we expect is going to expand its range northward. So kind of moving into the boreal forest from Ontario and Quebec and, and maritime provinces. Sugar maples, if you can think about those helicopters that you might have played with as a kid, if you've lived anywhere around maples, they have pretty big seeds. If you plant a sugar maple seedling, that's basically like a buffet snack bar for all of the creatures living in the boreal forest. <laughs> they're used to these really small seeds, or they're used to having to eat things like balsam fir seedlings or alder shrubs, which are have really kind of rugged leaves. And so putting down something that's really delicious, really palatable, means that it might all get eaten before it has a chance to establish. And so we've seen that in southern Quebec, and we've seen that with sugar maple seedlings kind of across the edge of the boreal forest. Here in Newfoundland, we have a bit of a problem with moose, and they have really chewed down the forest in some spots. And so here, if we plant trees, if we try to restore areas of forest, we really have to be thinking about how many moose are in the area and if we need to protect those seedlings from moose because they'll just come in and eat them all. I just want to ask you about a, a term that I learned this week, and, and I, I grew up in a West Coast rainforest, and I've heard lots of forestry terms over the years, but I've never heard this word, afforestation. What, yes. what, is that distinct from, from what, what we more typically know as reforestation? So reforestation is when you are bringing trees back to a spot that was recently forested in the past. So when we do forest management activities or wood harvesting in a forest and then plant it again, that's reforestation. Afforestation is when you are changing an unforested area to a forest by planting trees. So my example with the tundra would be afforestation, bringing trees into a formerly untreed area. How much of that happens now? The afforestation is happening perhaps more on smaller scales, whether it's working at restoring areas, like I mentioned, that were formerly farm fields, perhaps private lands that people have that they'd like to return to forest. So these are much smaller scale activities. Right. And this decommissioned farmland, given, given how much land that we're talking about to, to accomplish this goal. I'm wondering what role private landowners play in all of this. I think a private landowner planting trees on their own property, restoring old fields back to 
let's say, Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Forest in eastern Ontario or elsewhere, they're going to be very invested in the health and survival of those trees. They're going to care about those trees and see them every day. Now, now we've spoken on our show before about wildfires, and we we know this is part of some ecosystems. I'm, I'm wondering how the federal government should be factoring wildfires in when it's deciding what trees to plant where. I think wildfires are a really key part of this really complicated story of where to plant these trees. The dominant forest type in Canada is the boreal forest. And the boreal forest is adapted to natural landscape level wildfires. So when we're thinking about what species to plant and where to plant them, if we are planting areas of the boreal forest, then we need to be planting species that can withstand wildfire, either by regenerating afterwards or being able to survive through the fire themselves. Chris, I'm wondering, given given everything that we've talked about here, how realistic do you think the two billion trees project is can it can it be done can it be done quickly i think it can be done i don't think it can be done quickly and i think the degree to which it's successful is really dependent on considering all of those factors that we've talked about and really working with people in the forest industry who are already researching and studying and testing these kinds of things, working with people doing forest research, working with landowners. It has to be about those trees surviving for the long term. Carissa Brown, thank you. Thank you so much. Carissa Brown is an associate professor of biogeography at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Not all of what we're talking about today is new. In fact, Ontario's 50 million tree program started in 2007 with climate change adaptation in mind. Gary Nielsen worked for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources at the time and administered the program. He knows all about the challenges of planting millions of native trees on private land. Because it was a private land program, the feeling was kind of that, you know, there's going to be a subsidized tree planting program. We'll announce it and people will line up to get their trees. That didn't turn out to be the case. If, we're, if our new goal is two billion trees, that's a million hectares or two and a half million acres. So it's going to take a serious effort of, of landowner outreach to access that land base. There's a large percentage of people that will do it just because it's a good thing to do. There'll be another segment to whom land is a commodity. So, you know, I rent my hay field out and I get $150 an acre for it. And I, I'm going to need something of that in that order uh, if, if I'm going to d- dedicate it to trees. So there might have to be some kind of ongoing income stream uh, that might have to be part of the package. With, with these kind of programs, uh, political expectations are always very high. Everybody understands how not hard it is to plant a tree in your front yard. But to roll that up to, you know, the difference between planting one tree and planting millions of trees uh, is huge. It's very important to have a program with enough integrity to make sure that the trees live. You know, the announcement is, well, we planted so many trees. The real test is how many of those trees are still alive 10 and 20 years later. And I I have tremendous source of pride in in my involvement with the 50 million tree program just to drive by some of the the new forests that I had a hand in in developing. I, I can't describe how it feels. So it's worked. Undertaking a challenge of 50 million was was big enough. Two billion uh, would be exciting. I wish I was younger. 
Gary Nielsen is a retired forester and president of the Forest Gene Conservation Association. He lives in Brockville, Ontario. We asked the federal government when it's making good on its promise and planting that first of two billion trees. A spokesman told us officials are still consulting, but the goal is to plant all of them within a 10-year time frame. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So the focus right now is on the youngsters, seeds, saplings, junior trees, as the answer to climate change. But what about the elders, those grand towering giants that are even older than Grandfather Capilano, sometimes many centuries old? Gary Merkel wants us to pay them some respect and recognize that they too are part of the solution. Just a few weeks ago, the BC government released a report he co-authored on the future of old forests. Gary is a longtime forester, a policy analyst, and he's a member of the Taltan Nation. Hello there. This report concludes that BC needs a new approach to how it manages its forests. Tell me about that. We started with understanding that we really need to shift the way we think. Uh, we come from a long history of logging. This province was built on, on the logging industry. And we need to shift our paradigm where we are now managing for ecosystem health. That that we are not managing only for timber. Old growth, intact old growth, are one of the essential elements to maintaining healthy functioning ecosystem at a larger landscape level. What happens if you get rid of that portion of your ecosystem at a larger scale You have many, many species that depend on those um, that basically disappear. In in the southern U.S., we have large, long, long uh, pine plantations, and and in New Zealand as well, miles and miles of plantation, uh, even aged, cut over and over and over again. And they they eventually turn to almost like a uh, farm crop. There's nothing else exists in there, really no other animals, no other relationships. That's okay maybe on a smaller scale, but at a larger scale, the animals that would typically live there now can't live there anymore. The areas become unhealthy after a while because of this monoculture. They are not able to withstand um, new bugs or disease or other factors that come in because they're all basically the same. And so it's something starts at one end and spreads through it very quickly. It has very little resilience. When it comes to carbon storage, what role does old-growth forest play? Well, old-growth forests have a number of functions besides carbon. First off, they do store tons of carbon. And so if you want to work out the exact carbon balance, you need to figure out what you're converting your old forest to. But what they also do 
is they uh, absorb carbon from the atmosphere. They create microclimates, um, which are really important to grow new trees and new biomass. Plus, old forests store tons of genetic material. And as you clear them, you get rid of all that genetic material, which could be really important for us in terms of building resistant species and uh, creating new kinds of landscapes uh, because we we can't grow them fast enough to build new uh, resistant stuff in the kind of time frames that we're talking about. There are tens of thousands of people employed by the forestry industry in BC. What would it mean for those people if the government followed your recommendations? Maybe the better question is what would it mean compared to what's already going to happen? We have a number of areas in this province right now that are very close to the edge in terms of uh, seeing significant um, fall downs um, in harvests. We are also seeing a number of areas where we're starting to see the impacts of ecosystem degradation. Uh, We're seeing major species loss in some areas of the province. Our view is it will not go away if we don't start to focus on ecosystem health. We believe it will foster a much more stable and sustainable forest sector. It will not be the same size timber sector. That is true. And we recommend uh, the government work with communities through this transition. I, I really feel for communities and for those who have built their livelihood off of this. Your report focuses on the forests in BC, but I'm wondering how relevant the recommendations are to other parts of Canada and around the world. Uh, very relevant. The, um, the temperate rainforests that we have, there's not many of these in the world, and they are very important to world climate. Every country who has an advanced forest management program is struggling with this same issue at this point. Some countries have actually made some significant change to adopt different management frameworks. I'm always reminded of the Baha'i saying, the world is one country. We may choose to draw boundaries around things and we may choose to allow everybody to do whatever they want within their own boundaries. But ultimately, there is only one land. You have spent a a lifetime in the forests. You've cut down trees and you've studied the way forests grow. And I'm wondering what it would mean to you on a personal level to see this shift in the way forests are managed um, in BC and, and and elsewhere. I I would feel myself personally, I'd be so gratified, I suppose, that we have started down a path that I have to believe in my heart of hearts is absolutely where we need to go and is much better for all of us into the future. I thank you so much for all your time and insight today. You're welcome. Gary Merkel is a longtime forester, a policy analyst, and a member of the Taltan Nation. And that does it for us this week. A quick note, we didn't examine nuclear energy as promised this week, but I assure you it is coming up. And we got a lot of emails from you on our episode on electric vehicles. We urge you, and don't worry, we are working on a part two. And if you haven't given us a review, please do, and tell a friend to subscribe. 
Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.